We will be reading this morning from Joel chapter 3, verses 1 to 16. It's found on page 762 in your pew Bibles. And we will also be reading from Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 to 20. Joel chapter 3, verses 1 to 16. This was a, a particularly difficult sermon to prepare. As you'll see, it, it, it has a lot to do with judgment, and I think that's kind of hard for us to hear about. And difficult to think about how it's of comfort, how it's of hope to us today. So my hope and my prayer is that I'll do justice to it this morning and that we'll hear from it Christ held forth and, and the hope of his return. Joel chapter 3, verses 1 to 16. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head, swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earthquake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you'll turn now to the book of Revelation, look at chapter 14. You really have three scenes within this chapter. The first is a, really a vision of John beholding a scene of heaven filled with the saints in Zion, the full number of God's people, the 144,000. 
And he concludes in verse 5, and there in their mouth was no, uh, no lie was found, for they are blameless. And then you have a message of the three angels observing Babylon and making judgments upon it and calling for the endurance of the saints. And this is all following, of course, chapter 13, where on display is two depictions of the beast and his reign. And then we come to this section in, in verse 14, of Revelation 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour of the reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has the authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 16,000 stadia. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I mentioned this is a difficult text. I think as we come to it, we really wonder, what's the relevance for the church of hearing about the judgment pronounced upon those enemies of Israel and Judah who had enslaved them and scattered them and plundered the temple? And I think in order to get there, to answer that question, we really have to kind of take a survey of where we've come so far, right? We've seen how God in the middle section of chapter 2, promised to undo the curses of the covenant and restore vegetation and uh, fruitfulness to the land. And we also saw how he would give his spirit so that there would never again be a worship crisis, so that they would never again be put in this position, and he would instead offer them safety on Zion. But it, it really raised spirit question then. Okay, he's, he's restored He's promised his spirit, but safety from what? Deliverance from what? And, and, and really, it leaves the looming question out there too. What about the enemies of God's people that had oppressed them and infiltrated them and raided them and destroyed them for so long? Is he just going to create this bubble of safety and allow the nations to go unpunished? And the answer to that question, of course, as our text heralds today, is no, he's not. God, as all-powerful judge, is promising the full measure of justice and judgment upon the oppressors of his redemptive kingdom. You'll notice that term for the, in the title of the, the, the sermon, comeuppance for the wicked. That term kind of means you're getting what's been coming your way. And so we're going to look at this this morning in three ways. Uh, first, lawsuit in verse 1 to 8. 
Second, the harvest reckoning in verses 9 to 15, and then the beginning of the end in verse 16 and looking at Revelation. And our goal as we do so really is to see the promise of this judgment as, as grace and something that we can hope in through Christ. That, that this promise of God's judgment upon the wicked, upon the enemies of God's people, is really something that we can, we can put our hope and our trust in. As peculiar, as, as, as maybe weird as that is for us to do at times. So first, lawsuit. In the first eight verses, we're presented with a, a courtroom lawsuit scene where God, contrary to our perceptions, displays himself as the one who is in complete control. And I say, of course, contrary to our perceptions, because if we're suffering, if we're in anguish, if we're the people of Judah who have had this locust plague come in, who have suffered infiltration and, and war and, and defeat at the hands of our enemies, we might not be thinking that God is God at that moment. That's what the pagans would say. Clearly, we have defeated you and our gods are more powerful. But Joel doesn't present that as a question at hand. In fact, it's not a question of if God will come in judgment and destroy and obliterate his enemies in judgment. It is a question of when. For he says in verse 1, when he comes to restore the fortunes of Judah and Israel, all of this is going happen. Another indicator that God is the one that is in control here is in verse 2. We observe the one who is initiating this assembly is God himself. And this is a notable thing for us to pick pick up on because throughout the book of Joel and throughout other prophetic literature, we're presented with this figure, this nefarious and somewhat ethereal figure who, uh, from the mountains of the north, who will assemble all the hordes of the pagan nations and ride out against the people of God and attempt to take the throne of God. He is a pretender to the throne. He masks himself in the clothes of Yahweh, as it were, and presents himself as God. But he is not God. But he is not the one he presented here as the one who is assembling the hordes of destruction. God is the one calling all of the pagan nations to account in this valley of Jehoshaphat. Now the name itself also gives credence to that. Gives further proof. If the name is the name is named after what it's to be remembered by. And Jehoshaphat means the Lord is judge. So this is the valley where the Lord judges. Not the valley where the pretender of the throne rides out against the righteous and against the Lord and his anointed. So we see first and foremost that for those who were suffering affliction at the hands of pagan nations, their hope, their comfort, their consolation is that God is in complete control of the movements of history, assembling these hordes to receive their verdict. We also see then, as he moves to verse 4 to 6, that he does a sort of cross-examination or interrogation whereby he shows that there's really no escape for these afflictors. And he shows just how personal these offenses are to him. There's no, there's no grace offered. right? The time for that has passed. 
He says, are you trying to pay me back? You can't. I will reject your payment as quickly as it comes in. No kind of payment will do for the offense that you've committed here. You can't pay for these transgressions with anything that you've plundered from my temple. And why? Why is it? Because you've offended, offended and plundered the treasure of the holy God and his temple. So the offense, is against, the offense is against God's people and against his temple, but really and truly the offense is against him. It is against my people, my gold, my silver. So it's much worse than simply offending a regular people, isn't it? So the time for grace is ended. Now this is, this is relevant to us because they have first undone his redemptive plans and people, and second because what we're finding in God's indictment and in the charges that he brings against them and in the verdict that he will bring and the judgment he will bring is that every jot and tittle that justice requires will be brought to bear upon them. In verses 5 to 6, we see the repetition of what's listed in verse 2. They've scattered and they've divided the people of God. Now, what's the problem with this? Why, why is this an issue? But what was God's purpose? What was his plan for Israel, for Judah? That they would be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people of his own possession that he had brought out from bondage in Egypt into his own house to worship him and to be his glorious representative. One commentator notes this, the gravity of the sins of the nations against Judah are only understood against the backdrop of God's redemptive work in bringing Israel out of bondage and into a land as their possession and inheritance. They are, in effect, undermining the redemptive work of God. That's serious. So what's he going to do? Well, in verse 7 to 8, he lays forth his charges against them, applying the principle of lex talionis. That's a Latin term that means an eye for an eye. The essence that what's communicated to us in this is that God is going to exact the full measure of his justice and his judgment upon them. Lex talionis, the principle of an eye for an eye, expressed the limits of the law. So anything less could be agreed upon. An eye could be repaid with an agreed wage, but the fullest measure of justice would be to take the eye for the eye. It communicates a role reversal here, and the full measure, the full requirement of justice is here taken. You enslaved, you scattered, you divided, I will make my people to make you enslaved, scattered, plundered, and divided. They will divide you like spoils of war, and just as you sent them to the far-off West, to the Greeks, they will send you to the far-off east. There's a justice in this. Everything that you have done to me, everything that you have done to my people, will be exacted and repaid in full. Now, Joel here is, of course, speaking in the metaphors, metaphors and idioms of his own day. Everything that's happened to you in the present evil age will receive the full punishment that it, deser it deserves 
for standing against the Lord and standing against his anointed people. And everything that's happened to you will be reversed. You who are presently scattered will be gathered. That's good news, isn't it? Contextually speaking, at the very least, for a people who had been afflicted from various armies and from various uh, foreign powers, their hope, their comfort would be that they would not only be regathered to their land, that was the great messianic hope, but also that the Lord, the King of, the King of Jerusalem, would return and put, and put to the sword the enemies of his people that had infiltrated the land and that had ruled over them. And that was the great hope of the intertestamental period of the people of God, of Joel's people. And notice here how Joel concludes this section. How can they be confident in this reality that God will do this as he has promised? He says, for the Lord has spoken. Now that's, that's notable. Remember, pagan nations would observe the victory that they had achieved over Israel and they would say, our gods are more powerful. And Israel might be tempted to think that too. That's the ancient Near Eastern perspective. But Joel's conviction, his hope, his confidence, what he sets before them, the Lord has spoken. It is canon. It will happen. Acts 17.31 says this, He has affixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So we can bring this to the church. This is a, a present reality for the church and a future reality for the church all on the basis of resurrection. He is in complete control. We can, we can trust, we can hope in the reality of the resurrection that he will come in judgment, regather and deliver in the future from the oppressors of God's people. But it's also a present reality, something that we can be confident in, not just because of the resurrection itself, but because we ourselves, as gathered here together today, as the body of believers, redeemed from the passions of the flesh, redeemed from the enslavement of sin, we're able to say this is already happening. The people of God are already being gathered and hemmed in. Already sin is being condemned in the flesh. Already he has delivered. And this brings us to our second point, the harvest reckoning in verses 9 to 15. Here we see that God summons all pagan nations to be harvested and gathered. And the picture he paints is like ripe grapes who on judgment day will, will have their evil visited upon them in this valley of decision where the Lord sits against them as judge. And you'll note here that it's all nations that are gathered there. Verse 11 to 12 indicate that. All nations. It repeats itself twice. But the summons gets even more specific than that. Joel says in verse 9 that they should consecrate themselves that is, that they should be ceremonially gathered for war. And there's an irony here. There's almost a mocking uh, play on, 
on what, he, what Joel himself had called the people of Judah to do. You'll remember in chapter 2 and in chapter 1 both, he had called the people to consecrate themselves for a time of great repentance and consecration before the Lord. It was a sacred assembly, a sacred time when the, the whole of the, the people of Israel, the bride on her wedding day, the groom from the, 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 the tent of consummation should abandon their pursuits and come before the Lord here. Now the nations are, are, are told and commanded, consecrate yourselves for war. He also says to gather their plowshares. This is a notable term for Joel to use. It's, it's a term that was much more ancient, uh, several, hundred years, um, several hundred years old. And it refer, referred to an agricultural tool, like a small sickle that was oftentimes used before the Iron Age and before the development of standing, uh, standing armies in Israel for farmers who would use their farming tools to go to war. So the implication here is it's not just the mighty warriors who are called to consecrate themselves for war, but it's also the farmers and the average layperson who is called to this assembly in battle regalia in this valley of decision. And not only is it the farmers, not only is it the warriors, it is also the weak. Now that word for weak is not just somebody who doesn't hit the gym or lift enough hay bales or herd enough cows or climb enough hills. It's a term used for a gimp, a cripple. Even the lame are called here to assemble in this battle. And what's he gathering them for? Verse 12b, that he might sit and judge them. And the picture Joel paints here is like a vineyard that is ripe and ready to be harvested. The sickle is taken in hand and swept across the land, and the grapes are harvested and cast into a vat. And verse 13 ends declaring that the vats overflow because their evil is great. And I think it's conveying two senses. Not just that the number of people here in this valley of decision is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision declares Joel, but also that the, the measure of their wickedness, the extent of their depravity, this, the extent to which their, their ethical identity stands against God is so great that it cannot be measured. And yet, as the sun and the moon are darkened, this is language for God's appearing, the overturning of the cosmic order reflects the fact that they stand no chance. They themselves will be overturned. And why does this all matter? Because Joel says that the day of the Lord is near. He announces relief to the people of God. Relief to a people who would be beaten, who would be bruised, who would be sold into slavery, plundered, scattered, and had their sense of corporate identity as God's people infiltrated and lost. I mean, even after they had returned from exile, they are not only surrounded by enemies that remain subject to the whims and wishes of a king from far off, but they're also infiltrated by various pagan nations and peoples. 
So God is here promising that he won't just restore creation and give his spirit so that there's no more worship crisis as we've seen up to this point. But he will also come against those who had caused such anguish and a loss of sense of corporate identity for the people of God. He will restore to them their glory as a people. But it's also more than that. The people had experienced God coming in judgment against them in the locust plague. When God appeared in the overturning of the signs of the cosmic order against them. In this threatening of this army that no man fear, or that, that, that fears no man rather, that scales every wall and creeps in through the windows. They had heard that pronouncement of judgment that would come upon them too. And now instead is the complete polar opposite. Imagine hearing that this, this kind of infiltration and judgment by foreign army and by locust plague would never happen again because the spirit and that instead he would ride out against your oppressors. Imagine that Imagine hearing that he is never again going to sit against you as judge, but he will now hide you safely in Zion, delivering and instead judging your enemies. I mean, in the context of a, of a political nation that was representative of God, that would mean a whole lot. But what about for us? Well, for one, we are the nations ushered into not the winepress of God's wrath to be trodden underfoot, but into his sanctuary. We are the Gentiles. So that, that's, pretty, that's pretty big news, isn't it? that you who were once far off have now been gathered in before this time of reaping, before this harvest festival for reckoning. But also, as I, I, I heard this week um, from Mike Horton, one of my former pro professors, God has passed from being our judge to father. And now as our father, he refuses to let us go back under the dominion of sin and our sworn enemy. He's saving us from what will kill us. The guarantee of the spirit in the section before assures us that even in our sanctification, he refuses us he refuses to let us go back under the dominion of sin. He doesn't just justify us. He will judge our enemy. So there's no ounce of judgment left for the people of God. That's notable. He goes from being our judge to our father and now refuses to let us go back under the dominion of sin. No more judgment. And this is a terrifying picture that's presented to us. 
God mocking the nation as he calls them to this valley of decision, this valley where he is known as judge to trample them underfoot. Who does he instead hold accountable instead of his people? Who does he sit as judge against? Those who have thwarted his redemptive kingdom, sin, death, and the world. And this brings us to our third point, the beginning of the end. Verse 16. Joel has presented to us the comeuppance, the just deserts of the wicked. And this is really the first part of the end of the story that brings us hope and comfort in terms of our hope in the end things, right? And the reality, I think, is that sometimes justice feels far off. It's this distant thing that we, we really don't know what to do with. What am, what am I to make of the fact that God is going to judge the nations or our enemies? Is that something that I can hope in? It feels a little bit foreign to us. And I think there's this second aspect that, that actually feeds that feeling, which is that we're still tainted by sin. We don't, we don't feel the offense of this age, the world, and sin the way that we ought to. And perhaps that's corresponding to our growth in sanctification, to our own personal holiness, the, the way that we feel the offense of the world and the, the affliction and demonic oppression of the devil. But that leads us to the conclusion, and and why I think this is important, why I think we can hope in the judgment of our enemies. Judgment isn't just an abstract principle floating out there that we might hope in. It's actually good news for those who have fought the race. For those who feel the enemy encroaching in, it is good news to hear that God will sit as judge against them. Now, John's vision in Revelation 14 picks up the imagery of Joel's prophecy and judgment here. It pictures the Son of Man with a sickle in his hand, harvesting, harvesting the earth and filling the winepress of God for judgment. And here's the image that it paints. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. And blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle for 16,000 stadia. He pictures the, the blood of this winepress flowing for 184 miles like a summer monsoon sweeping through the land. That is a gory picture. It is a horrific picture. Of the, of the judgment that God will bring. The heavy hand that he will bring against the wicked. And why? Why does, why does John pick up the imagery of Joel here and apply this picture of judgment in this way? Well, because chapter 14 of Revelation is really the response to chapter 13 and the reign of the beast in this present evil age. In Revelation chapter 13, verses 7 to 13, it says this. Of the beast, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, 
and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captain, to be taken to, taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and, and faith of the saints. And it would go on in the second section to document another beast who would seduce the people with counterfeit gods. So John is in chapter 13 describing the nature of life for the people of God as they live in this sin-cursed world. What are we going to be subject to? The beast who is allowed to afflict them. The beast whose, whose attempt it is to seduce you with counterfeit gods. To try to seduce you with a worship crisis. Which was the crisis of Joel's day, wasn't it? So the reason for John's vision in chapter 14 is actually to give consolation to those living in the time of the beast. How? Because you live in a time of oppression where the nations, the beast, the world, sin, death, Satan, demonic forces are constantly assaulting and trying to undo the redemptive work of God and put you back under slavery. To remove your corporate identity. To remove you from the congregation of the righteous and their assembly in Zion. Joel is announcing judgment upon those who undid God's redemptive kingdom and had thwarted the sanctity and security of his people. That's good news for you if that's what's out there. The announcement of judgment is grace for those who persevere for two reasons then. First, because God will harvest and come against the wicked. Crazy to hear. Those spiritual forces, the devil, death, sin, sickness, sorrow, the world that makes righteousness and, and righteous living so difficult they all will receive their just dues. Those within this world that have maligned the church, afflicted the church, have persecuted the church, will find that God will trample them underfoot and he will sit in judgment against them. There's nothing worse than suffering and suffering and suffering, and suffering, and never seeing your bully, never seeing your oppressors receive any kind of comeuppance, any kind of what's coming their way. But the time of the oppression of the beast will come to an end. And then the Spirit will say of you, May they rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Second, so first, God will harvest and come against the wicked. Second, Joel 3.16 says this. 
The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people and a stronghold to the people of Israel. He's coming in the sound of mighty judgment in terrorist splendor, just as his voice thundered down from Mount Sinai and the people trembled before him on the mountain, except this time, when his voice thunders and when he appears in theophany and in glory and the overturning of the cosmic order and darkening of skies and, and the rising of the moon, that time, instead of being beneath the mountain in the valley, you will be on the mountain with him, safe from the wine press that he treads upon. Those whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life and have his spirit then are not susceptible to the schemes of the devil to counterfeit gods or to worship crises. That's the whole point of the giving of the spirit. Announced before this, that they might have hope and comfort that this would not be them. And that's grace, that's good news. Why? Acts 17.31, because Jesus was raised, and of this we are confident. And in this, then, there's an implicit warning and call to perseverance. Resist the devil, resist spiritual forces, so that you may not be numbered in the winepress, but with the 144,000, the full number of God's people. And what a joy and what a privilege it is that God's grace and his judgment, even now as he is subduing sin, death, Satan, and the world is so powerful, so mighty, and so strong that the people of God can gather as the congregation of the righteous each and every Lord's Day to hear his grace, to be renewed according to his image, and to experience safety from the arrows and the, and the, and the spears and the slings and the arrows of outrageous misfortune of the world, sin, death, and Satan. This place like no other. Persevere in righteousness. There is a day of comeuppance for the wicked. And our king will come. And he will keep us. By his spirit. This we hope. This we pray. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, as, as maybe peculiar as it is for us to hope in, in the judgment of our enemies, this we ask you give us now. And that as you do so, you would conform us to your image, that you would renew us in righteousness, and that we might look less and less like the world and shine brighter and brighter as salt in the earth. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.